0: Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of The Most Notorious podcast. I'm Eric Rivenus, and so happy that you are tuning in. A quick shout out today to 3 of my new top tier patrons at patreon.com/mostnotorious. Nicole and Trevor, yes. I appreciate your support greatly. It helps me keep this thing floating. Same to Molly, you're awesome. Appreciate your continued support, and I hope that you enjoy the new exclusive bonus episode I just released about a murder I've been researching for about 20 years, about a 1937 torch murder in St. Paul. For anyone interested, head on over and become a patron for this bonus episode um, and ad-free versions of every episode of Most Notorious and Minnesota's Most Notorious. All right, on to the show. I'm delighted to have as my guest Ron Francell, award winning journalist and best selling author of a multitude of books, including the acclaimed Angel Fire and Morgue, A Life in Death. His newest work just came out on April 9th, and it's called Alice and Gerald, A Homicidal Love Story. Thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me, Eric. It's a privilege.
1: Yeah. Well, I just finished the book. It's really great. Uh, The first thing I wanted to ask you was about something that you mentioned in your acknowledgments at the end of the book. Um, You grew up in Wyoming, and the events in the story happened in Wyoming. Were these events something that you remember hearing about when you were younger? Were they ever mentioned on the news?
2: No, actually, um, you're right uh, that, that I grew up here. This is this is my heart. This is this is my home. And Wyoming has always represented to me a kind of sanctuary. Uh, When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, about the time these crimes start to happen, um, I'm a I'm. Working in summers uh, on, on construction jobs and in the oil field. And I'm bumping up against these, this kind of people and in th- these kinds of places. Uh, so I know this landscape. I know the mindscape intimately. Uh, it's, it's part of me. Uh, did I know about this case? Absolutely not. This case was pretty much a secret for 40 years. There was no, uh, there was certainly no news stories. There were no investigations because there were no murders, right? It was, uh, it was not a case. It doesn't become a case in the public's consciousness until well into the twenty first century, when things start happening and dots start being connected uh, between all these missing people. Uh, so it's is I'm well into my crime writing career. By the time I or anybody else knows about this case, uh, I was working on another book, Morgue. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, At the time, I started to to see mentions of the story, both in the traditional media and in my social media. I was living in Texas. I still am. uh, But I keep in touch with Wyoming and my my old haunt, Um, uh, almost daily so uh, when this popped up it it registered but like I said I was working on this other book I set it aside as something interesting but I didn't know that much about it and and the the facts of the case were scant at that time anyway so uh, it, it was on a back burner until I finished Morgue and launched it Then I came back to this one and I very soon found that this was actually a bigger story than I ever imagined, both both in its American crime story sense, but also in a greater, more literary, more complex, universal sense. And we can talk a little bit about that.
1: My podcast is Historical True Crime. I usually focus on some pretty old stuff, so it's not often that I get to speak to an author who who interviewed the main figure in the story, uh, the murderer. I would imagine a lot of your research in this book includes interviews, firsthand accounts of events.
2: It does. And in this particular case, I interviewed more than 150 people with only two or three vital exceptions. I talk to everybody that's mentioned in the book. If I didn't talk to them, they were either in prison and didn't want to talk or they they had died. And there, there are a lot of those people in there because you're talking about a case that literally spans four, maybe five decades uh, where it is historic in the sense that it goes back that far into the early seventies. But uh, Along the way, you're dealing with memories that have changed and have been embellished over the years. Um, that's just natural. So, uh, I think my journalism experience serves me well in uh, triangulating the truth you know you talk to two or three different people and if you get three different stories you have to talk to another one you have to talk to a few more until you have a story that that looks like it's uh probably the truth uh, so yet yeah, I think the research part of it uh, is is not only a, a result of my journalism experience but it it's Part of the narrative nonfiction uh, that that I write, and it it requires this uh, sense of authenticity, this sense of genuineness, because it is true. It's absolutely true, but we're couching it in kind of um, a, a dramatic storytelling fashion instead of a repertorial. Uh, newspaper, inverted pyramid style. So you need those details. And so there's no other way to do it except to put your boots on the ground, go out there and look people in the eye, knock on doors, uh, smell the air, feel the dirt, uh, and try to, try to gather as much of that narrative dust that settles on everything uh, and makes the story real.
1: Yeah. So I'd like to start with Gerald Uden, if you don't mind. Uh, Some of the experiences he had early in his life, experiences that shaped him into the person he would become, the person that becomes such an integral part of the story.
2: He does. And uh, Gerald is a a Midwestern Nebraska farm boy. Uh, He grows up in a very small town with a very uh close family uh, in a in a way that i i guess fits our uh beliefs about that midwestern life experience and and he is all that he's kind of a, a, a farm boy country kid who isn't isn't particularly book smart nor street smart he uh he's he's average at best in probably every way. Um, he grows up, he, he enters the Navy, and when he gets out of the Navy, he, he's lost. He ha, uh, this is during Vietnam, although he's not in, in Vietnam. He's uh, stationed around the United States. But uh, when he gets out, he's lost. Uh, he's not really sure what he wants to be when he grows up. He doesn't really have the tools, say, to go to college or to get a really uh, high-paying job or important job. So he he becomes a um, a maintenance man and a a sort of low-level mechanic at a Wyoming mine. He comes out west seeking freedom, uh, seeking something that he doesn't even know he's looking for, but... uh, at that that time in Wyoming, there was a lot. There were a lot of people doing that. They were following the oil booms, or the uranium booms, or the the coal mining booms, and they were coming and going with regularity to the point where you know, somebody could be here today and gone tomorrow, and you really didn't care. You didn't notice. Uh, it was just a way of life. So. Gerald is out here doing these things and, and, uh, he doesn't drink. He doesn't have many friends. He likes to hunt. Uh, he lives in a trailer park. Uh, he's, uh, in every way kind of at the lower end of the spectrum. Um, and uh, it's, it's from there that this story kind of begins.
1: Yeah. You, you talk about people getting lost in Wyoming and, and it, reading your book, you really get that feeling of isolation, these wide open spaces. It becomes very important as part of the narrative, uh, especially when they're looking for bodies later on. It's an untamed wilderness in the 70s, isn't it? Kind of how we perceive Alaska to be now.
2: Well, and Wyoming still is. Uh, I think the only thing that's really changed about Wyoming is maybe the people have grown up a little bit more. Maybe more roots have been put down instead of being a place that you traversed on your way to someplace else or a different mindset or any journey that you can think of. um, I think there are more roots put down now, but I don't think the landscape has changed. And and you you talk about the landscape and and really I personally from Wyoming now living in a urban center of of Texas um, I think Wyoming is uh, literally and figuratively a foreign country to to most of the rest of the world particularly the East and West coasts uh, it might as well be a crater on the moon uh, so it's it, this this vastness this emptiness this loneliness actually plays a role in the story and we tend to give it uh, in the in the West we tend to rely on the landscape and the climate and the weather for everyday decisions every day your' thinking, well, what's the weather going to be like today? What are the roads going to be like? Where do I have to go from here? So that being the case, then there's no reason why that landscape shouldn't get uh, sort of a a leading role in this story because it does play a leading role. It's It's a kind of conspiratorial role. Um, uh, some of my early, one of my earlier books uh, also said in Wyoming, it was also true in that where the the this place uh, aids and abets the bad guys by by giving them a place not only to hide their crimes and their bodies, but to hide their behavior. I mean, in other words, they can get away with a lot more, and they can. They can slide into habits that won't raise other eyebrows, which you can't get away with in Manhattan or L.A. without somebody looking askance at you. But in Wyoming, you can. You you can live the life you wanted to live. So. Uh, that's what I wanted to do and which you sense there is that, that I wanted to give the landscape this conspiratorial role and paint it just as I would any other character, a human character as a a fully formed uh, three dimensional, uh, almost human thing. And as you point out, it, it, uh, it becomes an obstacle in the investigation, which we, which we just discussed, last 40 years. Uh, That inaccessibility, that remoteness uh, is part of the frustration.
1: So you you document some of his early relationships, but one that became very significant to his life and the story was his courtship and marriage to Virginia Martin. Can you tell us how they met and how that relationship developed?
2: Up to the... point of meeting Virginia Gerald has already met and very quickly married and almost as quickly divorced two other women so when he meets Virginia he fairly quickly believes she will be his third wife Uh, they meet because Virginia has an old gun that has been passed down in her family uh, she, uh, she knows that Gerald in the small town where they both live, um, she's been told that there's this guy out in the trailer park, uh, who's really into guns, really knows a lot about them. Maybe he can tell you what this gun is worth. So Virginia takes her old gun over and knocks on Gerald's door, uh, and that's how they meet. And as with his earlier relationships, uh, Gerald very quickly falls head over heels for Virginia, who has two young boys of her own. Um, it's it's important to know about Gerald that that he wants a family, he wants a wife, he wants uh, the, the the stereotypical relationships and stability that that he saw in his family. Um, and here's a third time here's presented to him a woman with her own children. My God, that's a ready-made family. And he's, he's struck very quickly and, and they marry. And, uh, you know, Gerald by this time, well, maybe I think starting much earlier, Gerald he sees himself as a sort of John Wayne character. He, he sees himself to be a protector, he uh, a, a cunning and powerful and heroic guy. Uh, he's not, of course. He's just a farm kid. But that's the way he sees himself. And so, in a sense, he's rescuing Virginia. He's rescuing these two little boys. And when they marry, he adopts these two little boys, Richard and Reagan. Uh, and very quickly they begin calling him daddy. Uh, and he and Virginia are for a time happy. Uh, and he has lived out his dream to have a family, uh, to be the protector, to be the powerful father figure that he really always wanted to be.
1: And he's taking his new family fishing. They're doing regular family things. He's got a new mother-in-law named Claire.
2: Claire Martin.
1: Yeah. Who is very close to her daughter and grandsons. And then suddenly something shifts, right? Virginia leaves and you hint at what her problem might be. But, but when she comes back, she's a completely different person, very standoffish and it just crushes him.
2: It does. And you're right. Uh, Claire Martin, her mother, lives in the same town. Uh, she she manages a little laundry, and um, Virginia is her only daughter, and Richard and Reagan are her only grandsons. They're the last people she has in the world. Uh, Claire herself was a Rosie the Riveter type person in pennsylvania during world war ii and she was sort of an adventurous woman when she brings virginia as a little girl out to wyoming she carries a, a, a a rowing skull on her on the top of her car because she likes rowing and uh she's a little different in a in a uh kind of praiseworthy way. She doesn't care what you think. She's going to live the life she wants to live. Uh, the problem is that it's it's on the margins. You know, she's not making a lot of money managing a laundry. Uh the family isn't well off. And Virginia kind of floats between jobs and and does whatever brings in money and then ultimately has to support these two little boys. Uh, Virginia goes off during her marriage to Gerald, at some point or, uh, within the first eighteen months, I think she goes off, goes back east. She's from uh, uh, Pennsylvania originally, of course. She goes back east uh, ostensibly to visit family, and she's there for a long time. And when she comes back, as you point out, um, she's distant. She's cold. She's she's lost some of her uh affection for gerald uh she uh is is he is so distant from him that he suddenly feels he has lost <laughs> number 3 and um, this is devastating to him and ultimately they do they they are divorced uh he loses his two little boys that he had adopted uh he loses virginia and he here we are again Back to the trailer park, back to the solitary life, uh, and believing that he's such a loser that he can't even keep three women, any one of three women, interested in him.
1: But he has a good job. He's able to, to pay some child support to Virginia. Yes. But not long after this separation slash divorce, he meets someone new.
2: Yes, very quickly
1: a woman named Alice Prunty.
2: Well, and, and Alice actually <laughs> pulls her trailer into the, the, the spot next to Gerald. And so as he sees them backing in and setting up, he catches glimpses of this, this buxom woman that he, uh, he will describe later as the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen in his life. Um, as it happens, her trailer is outfitted for, uh, 220 electricity, but the trailer's plug-ins are 110. So the, 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 manager of the trailer park comes to Gerald, who's of course a handyman at a mine, and says, Hey, can you, uh, convert her plugs so that she fits in our park? And Gerald could, and he was happy to because it was his entree to meeting alice uh, but he's head over heels he uh, he uh, in in a ways that he hadn't been before uh he he was head over heels before, but this is this is enormously geometrically different, and so he um he really pours it on, and they they go on dates outdoors, and uh, they do a lot. She has, uh, with her, she has two kids. In fact, in life, she has five kids, but two of them are verging are on adulthood, and the other three are, are occasionally with her and occasionally farmed out the family in the east, so that's a kind of fluid who's coming and going in her house. At the time, there are two of her children with her. And once again, Gerald sees the chance that if he can, he can woo this woman, if he could marry this woman, he would have the wife he wants. He would have the family he wants. How lucky am I, he thinks, to have a fourth shot. And I promise, I won't screw this one up. And that that becomes kind of the the, 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 the driving character trait in Gerald Eaton. Uh, he doesn't want to lose this woman. This this has to work. He can't be a four time loser. So it does. Gerald and Alice very quickly fall into bed. Um, and he believes she's the greatest love maker he's ever known. but after their first session of lovemaking, Alice tells him a strange story. She tells him how she had had an earlier husband who abused her and abused her baby daughter uh, so in a in one of his abusive rages, she killed him. Uh, and Gerald. Um, doesn't blame her for that you're being abused Uh, he got what was coming to him I don't want to waste time on that I want to make love again (laughs) and and that's that's sort of their life Um, and they, they of course court for a period of time not long and then Gerald marries Alice and once again Gerald has a family
1: but the problem is his old family isn't far away now, and Alice thinks Virginia is too financially demanding. And in Alice's mind, her life would be much easier with Gerald if Virginia and her children were no longer in the picture. Correct. Correct. And so this tension starts to build, and you've got this incredible couple of letters that you print in your book, just shocking <laughs> in their content. And it reveals this animosity and resentment that Alice has towards her new husband's ex-wife.
2: In many ways, I don't think animosity and resentment capture the venom that you saw in those letters. Um, Alice is, is, was scorpion-like in her, in her communications. Virginia wanted more child support. She wanted uh, not alimony. She just wanted uh, some, some little bit more for her boys. Uh, I think Gerald was paying about $50 a month and she wanted a small bump in that. Even if they doubled it, it's only a hundred dollars a month to Alice who was raised Catholic and who had her own um, flaws and perversities and insecurities. Uh, that, that was intolerable because it was taking money out of her pocket, uh, not just Gerald's, but her, her the families, and hers. Uh, she also had this very strong feeling that ex-wives uh, are out; they're 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 not in your family, they're not in your circle, they're not in your world anymore. Uh, there's a story I tell in the book of them being at a Christmas party when one of Gerald's earlier ex-wives simply comes over and says hello and Alice flies into a rage. But now we have Virginia who's asking for money and writing letters and threatening legal action. Alice gets involved with, as I say, these venomous communications to Virginia and things kind of spiral out of control. Uh, and Alice uh, who ultimately puts the ultimatum to, to Gerald, you fix this or I'm gone. Now, remember Gerald desperately doesn't want to be a four time loser. He will do anything to keep Alice, to keep this family that, that he was, that he got when he shouldn't have gotten. Um, He is susceptible to that kind of a a threat. Do something here or I leave. Uh, And that's about where we begin to see this story kind of unravel.
1: Yes, for sure. There's this weird dynamic going on where there are these custody issues He's giving Virginia and his adopted sons the cold shoulder. She and the boys end up coming back to Wyoming to be closer to her mom, which really ratchets up the tension, doesn't it?
2: Well, it does. I think Virginia had gone out to the East hoping to kind of disconnect from Gerald uh, on her own. That she, If she could find work out there and support her kids— she would be away from him. She wouldn't be so dependent on on him and his money. She could be away from Alice, who, of course, was treating her terribly. Um, and she was biting back. so there, there, there was there was a lot of tension there. and uh, but Virginia went out east hoping that she could find a job and support herself and her boys and be disconnected from Gerald. Unfortunately, it didn't work. At some point, she decides she's got to go home. She's got to live with her mother. She's got to get back on her feet, and her mother could help her do that. She uh, doesn't welcome that she'll be back in Gerald's circle but there's this other thing. That's where she begins to uh, ramp up her requests for more child support and that sort of thing. Uh, and things uh, things that were really bad before turn uglier at this point. And um, like I say, that sets the stage for Alice's ultimatum. Uh, and then we see... Then we see what comes next.
1: The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Steed's The Audiobook, available on
0: Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood, characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do
2: when the woman you love dies? Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really
0: mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
1: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Did, did you personally get the sense while putting this book together that without Alice entering the picture... Thoughts of murder would not have crossed Gerald's mind, right? I mean, he seemed initially to want to introduce Alice to Virginia. At one point, Virginia come comes to the car, I believe they're they're sitting in, and Alice kind of slinks down in the seat. Yes, yes. She doesn't want to be seen, trying her best to avoid meeting Virginia.
2: Well, it was one of those. If you're pro, it, this is a small, small town. Uh, it's uh, uh, one of those things where if Alice was on this sidewalk and Virginia was approaching, Alice would cross the street. She would slink down in the car if they were passing her, even on the street. The time that you describe when Virginia actually wants to meet Alice, Alice, you know, g- g- hides down below the window so that she doesn't, she isn't seen, nor does she have to see Virginia. Um, it, it's. It's at that level, I think the level of Alice's uh, – the depth of Alice's feelings about Virginia can't be underestimated i or I can't be overestimated. I think she uh is is insecure in a way that we can't we can't imagine. you're right i I don't believe Gerald came to that point. As the kind of sociopath that we see him become, uh, which is kind of odd. You know, we tend to think of sociopaths as being um, lifelong. There's there's either a genetic flaw or a nurturing flaw or or both together uh, that make them that from a very very early age, maybe maybe forever. And they learn the manipulation, they learn uh, how, to, how to get what they want, they learn lack of remorse, they, they learn how to use those things for their ends. In Gerald's case, we, don't, we have no evidence of that. He didn't kill anybody, he didn't really do anything, he was just kind of an odd, uh, uh, sort of semi-socialized guy Uh, who was kind of a doofus, wasn't looked well upon by his co-workers, but not as a killer or anything. It's just odd. And then along comes Alice, uh, who is a true sociopath or proves to be because we start to see some of her stories unraveling. We start to see things like the ultimatum that she makes. And and then the the casualness of her reaction to it. So I guess the, that's a long way of saying I think Gerald becomes sociopathic uh, because he learns it from Alice. He, he adopts that mask because it's the only way he can keep Alice in his life. Alice, on the other hand, is a true sociopath and she realizes she has the biggest gift in the world. And that is uh, a man who will do anything she wants. Uh, and that's the, uh, that's the gas that gets thrown on the fire here.
1: So Virginia, I think if I remember right, she left some things back East. Yeah. yeah. And and she needs to go back there. So Out of the blue, Gerald offers the use of a trailer. Yes, right. Yeah, could could you tell us what happens after that?
2: Well, as you said, she she had left a lot of furniture and things. She'd she'd come back to Wyoming in her rattle trap car and uh, with her little boys and didn't have room for these things, so she left them there, and she needed to go back and pick them up and bring them once again to Wyoming. So. she had casually mentioned that to Gerald one day um, because they did talk. They, they, he did like his kids, and he occasionally saw them. It's just they never bumped up against Alice. Um, knowing that and knowing he had this, this order, this command from Alice to take care of this, the, 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 the scheme started to take shape. Uh, he didn't know at that moment what he would do to fix it, um, but it was starting to come together. So he he knew he had to be close to Virginia in some way uh, in a place where he wasn't going to be seen. Uh, we talked about Wyoming in that earlier.
1: Um,
2: and so he tells her he has a friend who has a trailer, and that friend will be happy to loan her the trailer, no no cost. And Gerald will deliver it to her. She All she has to do is meet him in this remote little spot and uh, at a certain time on a certain day. And he'll give it to her. He'll hook it up. He'll take care of it. Um, so at the appointed moment, on the appointed day, Virginia takes – well, and Gerald, I should say, Gerald adds that, hey, while you're here, let's take the kids – they like to go plinking. They like to go shooting at cans with their little .22 gun and and shooting at birds or whatever. So we're we're out in the middle of nowhere. So tell them you, you bring your gun and we'll take them out. We'll shoot some cans while you're out here. Virginia shows up at the appointed time on the appointed day, but Gerald is there, but there's no trailer. And he makes up a story about how the friend. Um, didn't show up or didn't have it or it broke or whatever it was. And so they said, let's just go on. We'll do our, we'll have our fun. And Gerald gets in the car. They, they drive even farther out into the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, and Gerald tells her where to pull over. Uh, and uh, that's where uh, some of the awfulness begins.
1: Yeah. So I don't want to get this wrong, um, but he starts by murdering Virginia point blank with a gun, shoots her close behind the ear. Yeah. And and it was Richard after that, right?
2: Yeah, I think it was Richard that was next. And uh, uh, they're, they're out there ostensibly to shoot at cans. And it, uh, Gerald says, well, let me load the gun and see if it works. So he loads the gun and, and shoots once or twice. So nobody's, everybody's kind of, okay, yeah, that's normal. Uh, Virginia isn't paying that much attention. Richard isn't paying that much attention. Reagan has kind of wandered off to look at rocks and sticks or something. And having test-fired this rifle, Gerald turns to Virginia, who's not looking at him at that point, and puts the gun against her head and kills her. Um, she drops straight down. Uh, Richard, who isn't paying much attention, but standing near her, the same thing. Uh, by this time, Reagan senses what's going on and, and, uh, and sees this and, and takes off running. And Gerald follows him, and then the same thing ultimately happens to Reagan. So he, he has, fixed it. Um, He's done Alice's bidding. Now he has to dispose of his victims. Nonetheless, he's, he's proud that he has done this quickly and relatively painlessly. uh, And that, that he thinks he's going to be able to cover this up. And he's right. He's able to cover it up. Uh, The bodies are disposed of. uh, And Uh, he gets away with it at first police believe this is just a missing person's case despite claire martin the mother pressing them to to get more involved to look closer but it was just a missing person's case and so they they miss that golden hour they miss that sweet spot when Uh, memories and and evidence and calculation are going to be fairly fresh. Regardless of that, even once they sense there's more to this story, they can't find bodies. They don't know where these people might be, and they still entertain the possibility that Virginia, who had this history of wandering off to do things, might have just wandered off again. And um, that begins the the 40 years of successive detectives trying to put all this together, to connect all those right dots, which they're unable to do for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but each one pushes, pushes the ball a little farther down the field. And the next one comes along, pushes it a little farther, uh, and until 40 years later, it really has died for the last time. It's actually died several times in between. But that grandmother keeps it alive. She has artificially resuscitated it several times. And uh, I think she she is the moral center of this story. She's, she represents us. She represents the way we would feel if one of our loved ones or, God forbid, three of our loved ones uh, were suddenly missing. And and we knew that it wasn't an innocent explanation. We didn't know what the foul play might be. We just knew it was foul play. Um, and so she keeps this investigation going even when those successive detectives over time uh, let it die for various reasons, she never loses hope. It falters there toward the end, but she never loses hope.
1: Gerald is, is pretty clever. He seems to have thought through this quite a bit. He knows the Wyoming landscape pretty well. He tries his best to cover his tracks. And from the accounts you give, he does a pretty good job of it with a couple of exceptions. Um, He attempts to trash Virginia's station wagon after the murders, and he can't quite get it over the cliff.
2: Well, that was his plan, was to take it up into the mountains to a very rugged, remote spot that he was familiar with from his hunting, uh, and that he would push it enough that it would just roll on its own into a very deep canyon, you know, a thousand feet down uh, and never be found because nobody goes in there. Uh, and he believed that 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 would be the, the the sort of icing on the cake of his crime, That that this erases them completely. Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever be able to figure it out. Unfortunately, when he pushes the car, it uh, <laughs> veers to the right on its own for whatever reason, and becomes hung up on a, a large rock, a boulder. Uh, he can't get it off, so he he, he tries to burn it. Basically, he just tries to set fire to it. Um, that fails. So. So now he's frustrated. Now he knows he needs to get out of there before somebody drives by, whatever happens, he needs to get out. So he abandons that station wagon hung up on that rock and, and gets the hell out of there. He just doesn't want to be around. And he thinks anyway, he covers it up a little bit with some broken branches and uh, he, he thinks it'll be, you know, maybe never that anybody would find it, even that, even at that. Uh, and it is several weeks before anybody actually finds it. Um, still, the presumption is that uh, maybe there's some foul play, but there's no evidence of that. There's no, it looks like maybe teenagers had tried to vandalize the car or something. Maybe they stole it and, and then drove it up there to that lonely point in the reservation and left it there. It wasn't clear that it was related to any foul play. And again, there was no evidence of that. In fact, to the point where the sheriff's office merely had it towed back to Claire Martin's driveway and where they dropped it and said, here, here's your car back.
1: And they don't examine it very carefully, and one of the big heroes in this story is Claire Martin. She doesn't let this thing go. She searches the car herself.
2: She does. Yeah, the the, the sheriff's department looked at it casually and looked in the windows, you know, examined, you know, just very cursorily. They didn't, there there was no scrapings or collection of any of the carpeting or any, anything. They just looked at it and said, Yeah, no, this looks like. Somebody stole a car and then left it here. And so, again, they just had it towed down and dropped in her driveway and say, here's your car back. Um, again, because she believes it's not a matter of Virginia wandering off, she, she looks at the car much closer. Now, she's not a forensic person. She's a laundromat manager. Uh, she's a grandmother. She She has no experience looking for forensic evidence. Um, but she finds some things that that uh, pique her interest and, and to a certain degree uh, pique her fears. And so she calls the sheriff's department to come back and look at what she had found. And uh, when they do, um, their eyes are opened. And they actually find evidence in this abandoned car that suggests there was foul play. Uh, unfortunately, had had anybody been arrested for this foul play, any defense lawyer in in the world, the the least capable defense lawyer, uh, would have won the case on the simple. On the simple fact that uh, the chain of custody of this evidence had been broken when they dropped the car in her in her driveway and walked away. So while they do have now some physical evidence, it, it only informs them that that maybe there's foul play involved. Uh, for the first time, they're feeling that. But remember, this is before DNA. This is 1980. Uh, This is before DNA. This is, at this point, we have some rudimentary blood typing. Uh, We have fingerprinting. And those are sort of the big tools we have. We don't have computer databases. We don't have DNA. We don't have the rise of any number of forensic sciences. Uh, We have these two fairly... Um they can they're, they're, they're tools that can be used, of course, but in this particular case they're they're uh, useless. Uh, we, don't, we don't know anything about blood type of the, either the victims or even who might have done this. We don't the fingerprints we do have tell us nothing. Uh, so uh, the forensic evidence wasn't of value. The only thing of value was finding biological material in the car that that diverted their attention from a missing person's case to foul play.
1: So when does that happen? There are lots of investigators that that cycle through this. But when does this really solidify as a true murder case?
2: I think. When they start to question, and, and Gerald and Alice are early on, fairly early on, are people of interest to the to the authorities. Uh, but we're talking about a very small sheriff's department in a very small county in a very sparsely populated state. They they didn't have the kind of manpower that we see on TV. Um, they were they didn't have the kind of training of people we see on TV. So so there were a lot of uneven things going on. However, the the first suspicion is when Gerald kind of gives some statements that are suspicious in nature about the the uh where the car was left and uh, I think he makes a statement too about uh I, you know the grandmother was the last one to see them alive. Well, at that point, who was assuming they were dead? Certainly hadn't come up in conversation. Uh, There were a lot of things that he said that, that, that made them uh, suspicious of him, but in and of themselves weren't, weren't, they weren't guilt. They weren't expressions of guilt. They were just odd, odd expressions. And uh, so that's, that's about the time that they're starting to think there's some stuff going on here. Then um, Claire Martin starts receiving odd letters, ostensibly from Virginia, telegrams and letters and cards that, that all said all purported to be from Virginia and saying, Hey, I'm okay. I'm just, doing, I'm just on a walkabout, I'm just vacationing, I'm just getting out of things, I've run into some trouble here, don't worry about me, and uh, at that point, the, the, the authorities kind of settled back into a belief that, okay, maybe it is a missing person's case, until they discovered that some of these letters have been coming from a house in Illinois that Happens to be owned by Alice's daughter, and so now we flip back to the possibility of murder. <laughs> so they're back and forth on this several times. Needless to say, they the the right dots aren't presenting themselves, and and they're definitely not being connected. Uh, but their suspicions about Gerald and Alice are heightened. The local prosecutor convenes a grand jury. They present evidence to the grand jury. Uh, Gerald and Alice appear at the grand jury and plead the fifth, uh, you know, several dozen times. And they're all
0: released.
2: And at that point, the prosecutor feels so uncertain about all of this. They don't even ask the grand jurors for a verdict. They simply say, thank you for your time. We don't think we have anything here. Thanks for coming. Goodbye. At that point, knowing the suspicion that has fallen on them has suddenly turned serious, uh, Gerald and Alice sell their, their farm out in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, and they move to Missouri, buy another farm where, I hate to say this, but they live happily ever after.
1: It's interesting that despite a a grand jury investigation, et cetera, et cetera, it wasn't ever really leaked as a news story in Wyoming. Right. Authorities really kept this close to the vest.
2: Well, they did because they were on uneven ground. They They had no real evidence. There was nothing to tell the public. Oh, you can't say, oh, we think that guy did it. We can't prove it, but we think he did it. Uh, not in a, not anywhere, really, but certainly not in a small community. You you don't point a, a random finger at somebody. So that and the fact that we don't have bodies, the fact that, that we we don't even have a murder weapon without a murder weapon, without bodies, without a confession. This kind of case doesn't get a conviction. And then, and then their concern is. If we charge him based on what we do have, uh, and we lose, and then later we find the bodies, later we find a murder weapon, or he confesses, he walks. Double Jeopardy doesn't let us bring him back in and try him again. So that was playing a role in their decision, too.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the lack of physical evidence. He does a, a pretty good job of, of... Not leaving any tracks, he destroyed the gun, right? Except for the barrel, right?
2: No, in fact, it's the barrel of the gun that gets obliterated. Um,
0: oh,
1: right.
2: He he is remember he is a maintenance man at a mine where they have a big furnace, uh, uh, an industrial sized furnace that that turns to turns any material into flag, Uh, you know, just these little chunks of of nothingness. And that's what he does. He takes the gun apart, puts the the action or the metal part into that blast furnace. Uh, And uh, the wood part, he simply buries um, in a place that even he can't find again. Uh, So, yeah, so even if a murder, if that murder weapon would have been found, it probably wouldn't have, it would have, it could have been used as evidence, but it still wouldn't have connected all the dots. Um, the, the fact that this weapon will never be found um, makes that profoundly impossible. Uh, so, so we've eliminated one of the, the crucial pieces of evidence right there, and as as we tell in the book, uh, another piece of crucial evidence is the, are the bodies themselves. And um, uh, Gerald has has effectively done the same thing with them. He hasn't burned them in a blast furnace, we don't think, uh, but uh, he's he's. Put them in places that, that he believes nobody will ever discover them. And without spoiling everything, I can say um, nobody ever has.
1: He does actually move the bodies around a bit, correct? He, he, hides, he hides them at first and then second guesses himself. He does. The first location is a hidden little place. When he goes out there to move them to a more remote place, he, he finds them decomposing
2: right and and uh, you know there are some grim parts of this story that have to do with that. Uh, suffice it to say that Gerald is nervous that he will be discovered even out in the middle of nowhere he's worried that somebody will stumble across uh, these bodies um, as hidden as they were. Uh, Gerald believed that he only wanted to tell one lie he felt it was it was easier to manage if he could only tell one lie uh, and that one lie was that that he didn't that Virginia never showed up at that remote spot where she was going to get the trailer that they had made this appointment but that she never showed up and that was just one lie and he was proud of that but by the time they moved to Missouri, which is really only months after the murders, um, he has told more lies and it's becoming a little, a little more like juggling, you know, crystal. Uh, He's not, he doesn't want to drop anything. He doesn't want to set this whole thing um, on its head. He, but he's juggling as fast as he can. So, he does have some nerves, but by the time they get to Missouri and, and a thousand miles away from the authorities who aren't showing expert interest or even much interest at all, they, they feel very strongly that they've gotten away with murder and they, they live their lives accordingly. They, uh, they do a number of uh, little, little things that husbands and wives on the farms do. And they, they grow old, and and while the authorities from time to time show some interest, they're no they're no better off than they were before. And they might have a few more facts. It's not until their seventies, um, forty years later, of course, that that some things happen that their story begins to unravel, uh, and so here we have these. Uh, 70-something man and wife, very loving couple, uh, suddenly in the crosshairs of a murder
1: investigation.
2: And that's, that's what makes this a suspense, I think.
1: Yeah. And the one thing that comes back to bite Alice in the butt is the poor relationship with her children. Exactly. Who obviously see her for who she really is. The same confession she'd given to Gerald, the one where she told him that she'd killed her former husband, she'd confess this to all of her children as well.
2: Alice. The thing to understand about Alice, and which I think uh, that your listeners and readers of this book will will begin to see as the story unfolds, is that she's she's a narcissistic sociopath and Because of that, it's important for her to let you know what she has done. It's not enough to keep the secret and say, if I say nothing, I'll never get caught. In her case, she has to tell you. It's part of what she needs out of this. Uh, One of the things that I learned from a forensic psychologist uh, who was part of this story, who knew, who was familiar with Alice and Gerald's story, Uh, is that, that, that the crime isn't over, uh, when the, when the murder has happened. It's not over until, uh, the, the criminal stops deriving whatever, whatever they're taking away from it. And in Alice's case, she needed to tell people And she was selective about those people, but she needed to let them know. She wasn't unburdening herself. She needed to let you know how smart she is. She needed to let you know how uh, merciless she is, whatever the reason. And it was the fact that she had told some of her children when they were very young, uh, when when they really couldn't have done anything about it, but then when Alice and Gerald are in their seventies, then those children are now grown ups, and they're they've been carrying around these ghosts for a long time, and these ghosts have haunted them in perverse and uh, debilitating ways. So that's where we begin to to begin to get traction on this and that's where the authorities begin to get traction on this at least well when one of these kids comes forward with this vague vague memory of something his mother once told him a long long time ago he doesn't have the details but he knows that there was that something happened and there was a murder and all of a sudden remember that case of Alice killing the earlier husband, that takes center stage. So uh, that's where things start to fall apart. Uh, but as I say, Gerald and Alice by this time only have to stick to their story. And uh, these 70-something uh, elderly people, churchgoers, Gerald was an amateur painter, uh uh, they they walk free. They they finish out their days them knowing what they've done, but nobody else knowing. Uh, all they had to do was tell the same story they had always told.
1: It's interesting that Alice's killing of her former husband, Ron Holtz, was, was the catalyst for the eventual prosecution of Gerald for the murders he committed. Her killing her husband, it... it It seemed to be in self-defense against a a very abusive husband. And it got me thinking that if she'd just called the police immediately after she'd killed him, she probably would have been acquitted um, or or not even tried. Don't you think?
2: Uh, No, I personally, I don't think so. Because I, I know Wyoming in the early 1970s. There's no 911. There wasn't any 911 anywhere, but certainly not in Wyoming. Wyoming valued uh, self-reliance, valued that independence. Um, There there, there was there was a feeling, and I think a primitive feeling, about domestic abuse, uh, where maybe a lot of cops, certainly a lot of sheriff's deputies, thought you know if a woman got Knocked around, she probably deserved it. Um, there's no question that Ron holds that husband number two, uh, number three. I'm sorry, this husband number three was was abusive. He was a drug addicted, uh, uh, paranoid schizophrenic uh, veteran, door gunner from Vietnam. Uh, he had checked into a VA mental ward. Uh, where Alice happened to be a licensed practical nurse. And because of course that he's perfect marriage material, uh, she falls me- immediately and madly in love with him and they run off and get married. And that lasts, you know, four or five weeks before she, uh, says that she was being abused by him. There's no doubt in my mind that she probably was. But what we knew about Alice now is that she wasn't going to stand for that very long. And, uh, yes, I believe he was abusive. But at the time of his death, there is no doubt in anybody's mind that uh, he was asleep. (laughs) He he wasn't abusing anybody. Uh, So this wasn't one of those um, immediate self-defense kinds of things. This was more a uh, um, a premeditated uh, way to neutralize any future abuse. Whether it was his abuse that put Alice off or that she just didn't realize there you know she realized finally that he was not the man she wanted to be married to so she needed to get rid of him uh i don't know i mean i i tend toward the latter instead of the former that that this was solving a problem it wasn't abuse this was about solving a problem that it was just alice wanting something else um And as the book points out, I I believe there's another one and there's another example of that same thing before she meets Gerald. So uh, what we know about Alice, what we know about her her psychopathology uh, suggests that, yes, she might have been being abused, but uh, this was a solution of a different problem.
1: Tragic aspects to all of this, in a book filled with tragedies, had to do with Claire Martin. Absolutely. Who managed to make it to the age of 92, despite for decades trying to get answers. And she waited and waited, hoping against hope, and she just can't make it.
2: She can't, and and she passes before anything of substance happens in this case. So she passes not knowing and uh, she passes having never really given up hope uh, that at least the grandsons would be found and and would have been, who would have at least survived. Uh, She came to believe that maybe it was likely that Virginia had died but she she believed almost well to the end that the grandsons were were probably alive and she couldn't imagine who would kill two beautiful little boys. Um, she wrote um, a, a poignant letter to these boys um, long before she died because she always she sort of expected she was by she was in her seventies. Herself by that time, but um, she wrote them a letter uh, that that was to be given to them if should they ever show up, should they ever be found alive, and it it, it explained to them how she believed in them and how she never gave up and that they should know that um, and who they needed to go to to find out. Uh, so she she unburdened that part of herself, hoping that someday her these two grandsons would read uh, read her words and and understand. Um, of course, to this day we they've never turned up. She bought grave plots for all of them, and those grave plots today sit empty in a small town here in Wyoming. Uh, uh, I I've told this story that, that in my career as a journalist um and often as a cop reporter I've come I've come across stories routinely that should make a normal person weep but because I had a job to do because I couldn't afford the time or the embarrassment or the the energy to weep. Uh, I compartmentalized everything. And to this day, you know, uh, 40 years later, uh, I'm very good at compartmentalizing. I'm very good at approaching these things and saying, I have to work. I can't cry. Uh, Claire's story makes me cry. And, and maybe for the first time in my career, uh, can I, can I say that, uh, Claire's story, not necessarily the way I write it, but just the way she lived it makes me cry. And I can't explain why that, that has escaped my skill at compartmentalization, but it did. It did. And, and it is the most moving part of the story. And that's why I say it's the moral center of the story. A lot of people are doing immoral things. Uh, the investigators are trying their damnedest to, to, to close this case, but failing repeatedly. Uh, so they, they have their own flaws. Claire is, is the moral beam through this whole thing and the way it ends and how it ends and when it ends are, uh, the most, uh, poignant among the most poignant stories I've
1: ever told. Absolutely. I mean, it really is a great testament to law enforcement. This could easily have continued as an unsolved cold case. But there were some really tenacious investigators from all sorts of different agencies who would not give up. And without a body, without physical evidence, the way they were able to coerce a confession from Gerald was just incredible.
2: It, it really And they had a lot, they had some luck there toward the end, and, uh, you know, it might have gone even deeper cold uh, had they not had this stroke of luck that makes you slap your head and go, How did that happen? Uh, but they are, uh, there are about six of them, they are representative of that determination of that obsession uh about the kinds of people who are working these cases in in this particular case it's a series of course who uh one builds on the other for 40 years but but let me think about it this way you're dead maybe a loved one of yours is dead and you're you're murdered um the killer was smart enough to hide your corpse or your loved one's corpse far from your home in a secret place where it might never be found. Your, your friends, your family, they all wonder what happened to you, but, but they're hoping that you just started a new life. Without that body, without any evidence, like we had in this case no evidence, uh, detectives, particularly in small agencies, have to work cases right now. They can they can get justice, they can enforce the law, whatever, on cases right now, so they move on. Your, yours gets pushed to the corner of the desk. You just became a cold case. Now, each of us wants to feel that our existence matters, of course. We want to believe we're going to be missed. Um, we all also hope that there's somebody who won't forget. In this case, there's Claire. It's some of the investigators. Uh, we want somebody to write that missing ending. Uh, you know, but it's hard to write. We don't know what happened. If you happen to be luckier in death than you were in life, It's going to be one of these passionate, maybe even obsessed detectives. And they're going to pursue your case even past the time when their sheriff or their captain or their wife or their friends are saying, cut it out, let it go. Um, That kind of obsession is a blessing and a curse to these people, but they can't not be obsessed. That's what we hope for. We hope there's somebody who believes in us long enough and powerfully enough that they can write that ending. And uh, that's the kind of people there I tried to describe among these detectives because I think they are that.
1: Well said. So Gerald and Alice Uden are currently sitting in prison. And Part of your research involved lots of interviews with Gerald. I think you even mentioned at the end of your book, he, he wrote some kind of biography, right? His version of the story, which is something a lot of criminals do. I guess they have all the time in the world to sit and contemplate these things. They want to try and change the narrative to to benefit themselves. Try to elicit some sympathy, I, I guess. Exactly. What was your experience like talking to him? What was your sense of him? And you were not able to talk to Alice, were you?
2: No, she was steadfastly refused to participate in any re- any interviews. She was barely, barely helpful to her defense lawyer. Um, uh, so she, she was able to keep everybody at arm's length. Gerald, not so much. I, once I decided I was going to do this story, I wrote to Gerald and asked if he'd do interviews. And he at first resisted. Um, but I kept writing and after two or three letters between us, he, he got a little more comfortable with me and, and so he opened up a little bit. Alice wasn't happy about it. Of course, because she had refused and she wanted Gerald to refuse too, but, Maybe, for the first time in their relationship, he kind of went on his own um so we we by the time I actually started re- writing the book uh we had corresponded for a couple of years um and we would get maybe monthly letters sometimes a little more often uh and so i i uh, before that I started writing, I had proposed to him. That we meet in prison, and he agreed. So we spent uh, two or three sessions face to face in the little visitor room at the the uh, prison. He struck me as like your slightly odd old uncle. You know, he told jokes that weren't that funny, but he kept telling jokes. Um, he he would sing songs and recite little poems badly um, I would ask him questions he would draw maps in my notebook uh, little pictures uh, he, he like any older man he fondly recalled events and people in in his early life but when when the talk to um, the crimes, he, this veil came down and, and he spoke matter-of-factly, he spoke coldly, he spoke kind of distractedly about what happened. Um, at one point, he expressed regret. Unfortunately, his regret was that that one of Alice's children had set this all in motion by talking to the cops. So his regret was that he'd been caught, not that he had killed people. So uh, Gerald is is like I said earlier. I don't I don't see him as the born sociopath, I and mean, he's not the natural born killer. He's somebody who did it as a um, as a means to keep the life he had. That doesn't make him any less of of a sociopath. And I don't I don't think I'm saying that. Uh he is. He's a killer and he's a cold killer. Uh but I don't think he started necessarily started that way. I think ultimately he was manipulated. And and really I saw this very early, uh this whole story very early as a kind of Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, very I, I mean Alice is Lady Macbeth. Alice is this cold, manipulative, uh, narcissistic uh, sociopath who who needs to control everything around her at any cost, even murder. And that's Lady Macbeth, and it's also the real life Alice. They don't. They didn't know any boundaries. Uh, whatever their personal ambitions were, they had no regard for anything else, even the law. Gerald, on the other hand, saw himself as that John Wayne character. And and uh, so he was desperate to keep Alice and to keep that, fa- that fourth family together and would do anything. So uh, because of those parallels to the Macbeth story, there are illusions. Uh, hidden throughout Alice and Gerald, I wanted it to have this literary quality, this this uh, a story that was as complicated as the investigation, uh, but I didn't want it to be inaccessible to the ordinary true crime reader, who who generally likes more austere storytelling. So uh, those deeper themes are there, and if 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 you know Macbeth. You see these things all throughout the book. You'll see little references, and you'll see little words and themes that, that refer back to that. But they're hidden, and they certainly don't make it inaccessible. You're not reading Shakespeare language. You're reading an ordinary American crime story. Uh, I just like those deeper stories.
1: Are you getting a copy of your book to him?
2: No, I can't, because, because true crime is usually one of those things that the prison is pretty pretty finicky about. Oh, of course. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> sure. they, they can send all kinds of books. Uh, you might even be able to send um, uh, naked pictures. I, I don't know, but uh, true crime, definitely. Uh, one of my true crimes, uh, The Darkest Night, is on the uh, the banned books list at the Texas... Department of Corrections. So, so yeah, (laughs) Uh, you know, it's uh, it's very difficult. Uh, I have no doubt that that uh, some of that family on the outside will communicate uh, the essence of the book to him and to Alice, uh, and I expect to hear from them. I expect to hear from the family, and I don't expect it'll be fondness. But it's true. And uh, the depth of the research that went into this, um, it was unprecedented for me. I was given uh, uh, complete access to 40 years of the case file uh, and without restriction. Uh, That's
1: pretty uncommon.
2: It is. It, It was unprecedented. I've never as a journalist had that. Uh, and it took some doing. It took some some lawyering on my part. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I was given everything. From day one of the missing person case, I have the missing person report. Uh, when Claire Martin goes to the sheriff's office and said, my daughter is missing. And then I have the much later, I have the video of Alice's interrogation. So uh, from alpha to omega, it's, uh, the depth of the research has, has been, like I say, unprecedented. So if Gerald and Alice have complaints, they're, they're either marginal, insignificant details, or it's just their, their view of something. But let's, let's be real. Both of them have either confessed to or been convicted of these deaths. Uh, there's there's uh, every reason in the world for them to tell stories. Uh, and in fact, even after this conversation that we've had, I can confess that I don't necessarily believe the stories that Gerald tells about these deaths. Uh, and that's explained in the book about uh, in sort of grim detail why i don't think he i i think he might not be telling the truth
1: do you have your own theory on what happened
2: yes well not my own I, you know other people have this theory but okay but sure. uh my i subscribe to it and again i don't want to get into spoilers but um I don't necessarily think things happened the way Gerald says they happened. And the way this story unfolds, that it, it depends on everything Gerald said. It, it sits on that foundation. It's just that now after being immersed in this story and immersed in the details and, and being immersed in the, the psychopathology and the forensics, I believe something else and I believe the story Gerald tells is maybe not it. And that would explain too that veil that I was talking about when we talk and he describes these crimes and that veil comes down and he's suddenly more distant. He's suddenly more matter of fact. uh, That might be because that's the story he made up and he's just speaking it again for the hundredth or the thousandth of time. Um,
1: or or it could be a coping mechanism to help him distance himself emotionally?
2: It, it could be. It could be. The, but, but yes, it could be. Um, but there are details that are gleaned along the way that will lead you, when you read this book, it will lead you to other scenarios and some of them make more sense than others. And some of them, or at least one of them, I think makes more sense than the story we're telling here. Uh, but again, that gets into spoiling for, for readers, but uh, I know I this is one of those things that don't believe it just because he says it. And it, it's, It's the story that they learn. It's the story that Alice and Gerald tell. It's what the investigators are hearing along the way. I'm just coming to the conclusion later that maybe it isn't like that. Maybe it's something else. And again, I'm not making that up myself. That's an opinion held by better criminal uh, interrogators and forensics people than I am uh but i don't know that we'll ever find out which of those stories is is genuine um there there are three bodies that have never been found
1: do you think his account of his murders of virginia and her boys was an accurate one
2: mm, i think he murdered virginia and her boys
1: but in a different way <laughs>
2: And and maybe, maybe it happened at a, in, a, in a, a kind of ambush out in the middle of nowhere, the way he describes. Right. Uh, what happens then is really where it turns for me. What happens after that killing uh, is really where the story gets debatable. And as I say, we tell that story about the disposal of the bodies and things that happened there, um, because that's the way he tells it, because that's the way investigators were hearing it.
1: Right. He's the only living eyewitness there is.
2: But I said, right. And he's an unreliable narrator, for, of course. But that's what the cops are hearing, too. And so they're proceeding on that. Uh, and it's unimportant what my theory is about this. Ultimately, three people died. Uh, what happened to them after that? I think tells us more about Gerald and Alice than it does about anything else. But I believe, um, I, I believe that what really happened was unspeakable. I mean, literally unspeakable. That they they cannot say it right now without. Uh, proving themselves to be even greater monsters, even uglier monsters than, than we already know them to be. So, uh, that's part of the book. That's part of the story. Uh, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that these three people are dead. They were murdered. I have no doubt they were murdered by Gerald and or Alice. Uh, and they're gone. And we've never found them. I I wish we could. Uh, When we do, if we do, uh, they'll be buried in those little grave plots that Claire bought for them. And some of her ashes will be buried with them. And that that right there uh, would be the best ending to this story uh, that I can imagine.
1: Well, this has been great. How do you suggest people get your book? Will it be in bookstores across the country?
2: Yes, it'll be. It's available everywhere. Uh, You name it: Amazon, any bookstore. If they don't have it on the shelf, they can get it for you. It is published by Prometheus Books, uh, distributed by Penguin Random House. So, it's it's available everywhere. It's. uh, it, you should have no difficulty. I know it's on Amazon. I know it's on Barnes and Noble. It's on all the online retailers.
1: Do you have any events coming up later in the month or any way people can get access to information online about your book?
2: Yes. My website is ronfrancel.com. Uh, my, my touring schedule is on there. In fact, I'm in Wyoming right now. Uh, I normally live in San Antonio, but I'm in Wyoming right now to start a book tour uh, here that'll be about a week long, and it will take me to the places that are uh, at the epicenter of this story. I'll be talking, you know, to people who knew these people. In some cases, I'll be um, uh, reunited with investigators, with other people that I've I've interviewed, and who are players in this story? So uh, there, there, there's some great benefits there beyond the promotion of the book. But yes, I'm I'm here for this coming week, and then I have some other events scheduled in Texas, and there'll there'll probably be other events scheduled as we go, probably well into the summer. So uh, if if there are, they'll be posted under the events. Uh, calendar at my website
1: perfect well well, thank you again so much for your time
2: eric you did a great job i appreciate the time you're giving me
1: oh appreciate that thanks so much thank you again i've been speaking to ron francell and we've been talking about his book alice and gerald a homicidal love story this has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Ribinus and have a safe tomorrow.